Arrow Films is a leading independent entertainment distribution company established in 1991, operating in the UK, the Republic of Ireland, United States of America, and Canada. Arrow Films is dedicated to supporting upcoming and established filmmakers of dynamic new cinema and developing an inviolable slate of quality films that enjoy a lasting legacy across its award-winning branded labels, channels, and platforms. Arrow Films is also a leading restorer and theatrical distributor of classic and cult horror films, including landmark titles such as the 25th anniversary reissue of Cinema Paradiso, the 15th anniversary reissue of Donnie Darko, and the 30th anniversary reissue of Hellraiser. These lovingly restored films are brought back into cinemas nationwide with brand new look campaigns with wide-reaching distribution, including outdoor event status screenings at various cultural festivals and as one-off bookings in local repertory cinemas and film societies. Aerofilms is also widely considered to be the global market leader in the premium home entertainment market fueled by passionate and expert curation aligned with state-of-the-art in-house film restoration, resulting in highly sought-after bespoke Blu-ray editions of classic cult and horror films across its Aero Video and Aero Academy branded labels. Beloved by collectors, these ever-expanding brands continue to delight their growing international fan base with regular interactive live events, festival sponsorship, and retail stands presence. Our offering extends to truly limited edition box sets, as well as associated spin-off products, now including books and vinyl records. We are so happy to have Aero Video as one of our new sponsors. You can find them at www.aerofilms.com. While you're there, be sure to pick up some cool titles. For example, they have the brand new American Werewolf in London collection, which is beautiful. The complete Sartana collection. Hellraiser 1, 2, and 3. Toys are not for children. A new edition of Al Pacino's Cruising. And let's not forget a limited edition copy of Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas and a limited edition copy of RoboCop. There's so much more I can't even get into them all, but trust me when I say they're fantastic. And we couldn't be happier to have them. So once again, visit Aerofilms at www.aerofilms.com and check out all of their brands from Aero Video, Aero Academy, Aero Films, and Aero TV. Before we start the show proper, can I tell you about a TV show I've been watching? Of course. So, I might have already told you about this because I got really excited when I watched the first episode. But Hulu has a new docuseries about Paul McCartney. I Yep, I saw I didn't see it, but I saw that Hulu has it. So, it's called McCartney... 321, uh, 321, yes. And it's Paul McCartney and music producer Rick Rubin, where Rick Rubin is... A big enough producer where if people even just start just start learning about the the inside baseball part of music, he's a name that people know. You know, he, yeah. he created oh, Def, he Def played Jam. Pee Wee Herman. So yeah, that's my name. Don't wear it out. He... <laughs> no, he did not. That's Paul <laughs> oh, Rubens. Okay, I'm sorry. Uh, Rick, he, he he was he's responsible for the Beastie Boys. He created Def Jam Records, but then he also did like. Like Johnny Cash is like you know remember Johnny Cash's song Hurt yeah, yeah and it was American record he produced all those yep so he's just a big time music nerd and what this show is because it's like okay what new can I hear about the Beatles you know that's just, that's probably sometimes doing shows like this with big popular acts I'm like what new can you tell me right but I thought how I'd give is a this show. not just going to be a retread of what makes this interesting is for a couple things one 
It's just Rick Rubin and Paul McCartney in a studio together. And they have an old mixing board with a bunch of their his songs, like the tapes, actually loaded into the mixing board. And they're going back through the songs and telling stories about them and then playing with the mixes. So they'll like, you know, if they're talking about Paul McCartney, like uh, the song As My Guitar Gently Weeps, they talk about, you know, the guitar work in there and actually how Eric Clapton played the guitar on the song for that for them. And they would single out George Harrison's vocals and shit. But then, like, Rick Rubin's like, I've, I've always noticed something in this song. And he turns everything off but Paul McCartney's bass lines. You just have this really th- thumping bass. It almost sounds really aggressive and raw. Like, it came from a punk song. And he's like, tell me about that. And he's like, well, we always wanted to, you know, almost feel like we're mixing two different songs together. So, like, they're really pinpointing, picking apart the songs. Sure. So, if you're a music nerd, it's r- really cool. And... But one thing I'll talk about as well, you know, I, I'm pretty proud of the audio setup I have in my home. And when I first, so in surround sound, you have at least, you have at least five speakers. You have left, right, two backs, and then one in the center. And the one in the center is usually what brings through the vocals. Um, anyone who's ever had a hi-fi system in their life, you know, just you know, two speakers and a turntable, or you know. <laughs> um, knows that if you have your speakers pointed just right, it makes it sound like it's coming from directly in the center of you. You know, what was throwing me when I first turned on this show, and I was like, the show is in surround sound, but it's like, why is it sound like nothing's coming out of my center channel? <laughs> and then and, until the music came on, and then it like almost kind of punched in the face. It's like, oh, I see what he's doing. They mixed the show to be mixed like an audio, like a, like a, like a music album. Oh, okay. So, like, there was, it was coming. There was audio coming out of the center, but they just brought it really low, so that way it was really defined on your left and rights. So when they're playing around in the tracks, especially because the Beatles did a lot of stereo sound, you know, like you'd hear like, um, um, you know, it, when they turned down all the music, but his bass riff, that's just coming out the right speaker. I'm like, oh, that's kind of yeah. cool. Okay. And then if they bring up the vocals, they start coming out the left, and it's just like, oh, I see why they did what they did. So, like, as a music nerd and just an audio file, like this has been a, a great treat for me. Oh, nice, <laughs> <Yeah>. awesome. <laughs> so, anyone I know who likes music, I've been like, you should watch this. But if you're gonna watch it, watch it with the nicest pair of headphones you've got, because watching this with TV speakers, well, it'd still be a good show. I feel like you'd lose something. Right. Yep. Cool. Yeah. So, Groovy. I imagine you haven't done a whole lot because you've been plenaring it up. I have been plenaring it up. I did <laughs> fit in uh, our topic movie. Uh, late. Uh, like, I, I went to bed at like 8.30 last night, and I'm getting comfortable, and I went, oh, shit, <laughs> I gotta watch a movie. <laughs> Were you able to stay up for it? Oh yeah, yeah. Raina didn't make it through, but okay. uh, but well, I got to the end of it, and and what a friggin' treat! <laughs> what that's a the best segue we could possibly get. What so, a friggin' treat! Sip of coffee for the worker man. I got ice water this time. Mm. Back in the studio. Yeah, so. I, had, I had my coffee already this morning. So. Warning: This movie podcast actually discusses movies. Be aware that it may discuss any of the following elements. Endings, surprise twists, unexpected cameos, and all manner of spoilers. Without further ado, please enjoy our feature presentation, The Shameless Picture Show. Hello and welcome to another episode of The Shameless Picture Show. 
I am one of your hosts, Michael Byers, and with me, as always, is a man who prefers to do his business with no doors because the <laughs> ethics are the same. Nick Richards. <laughs> On today's episode of the show, we'll be doing a special request episode from Paul Dieter of the film website Purely Kino. Paul subscribes to our projection booth tier on our Patreon, which gets you a very, which gets you a special episode of your choice and some swag. Uh, we actually have another one coming up, Nick. That I don't know if I told you about, but I don't think you did. Uh, Stephen Millick um, of the Twisted Dreams Film Festival. He he jumped up for a month so he can get a bonus episode. Awesome! Uh, and he wants us to review the movie Swiss Army Man with Daniel Radcliffe. Okay, which I've not seen, but I know of it. <laughs> Okay, and I just I'm excited. I just want to mention it all to everyone. You know, this podcast doesn't make us rich. Like we we we, <laughs> we practically make no money off off this podcast because it all goes into keeping the lights on, essentially. And, and I think we've put far more money into it than yeah what we've gotten out on the so, back end. Anytime you guys jump in, even just for a couple bucks, helps us out a lot because you know hosting fees. Um, you know, keeping up with, uh, like I, I, I'm going to be doing another, mer- I have to buy some more merch soon. Uh, yay. Yeah. So like that, that's pr- pretty much the bi- the biggest pitch I'm going to give to you guys is, you know, like, like, it's not like, you know, Patreon subscribers coming and me and Nick are like, Oh, let's go get a steak dinner or anything. It's like, Oh no, now, now I can, pay- we're not losing money this month. I can pay for a Libsyn account. Awesome. <laughs> And not have to take it out of my own personal account. So, <laughs> so that that just you know, so that's why we try to give you guys some stuff. Like we we got we got some. We'll probably have some new swag coming soon because my beautiful and talented wife is going to be redesigning our logo. Yeah, and there is a reason for that since we have a website coming. Yay! So we'll ha- we should have some new stickers and new buttons soon once that's done. Which means the old ones are now collectible. Exactly. <laughs> um, another thing that Patreon money is going to. Is I'm friend of the show, Katie Cadaver. Nick, you remember Katie? Oh, she was yeah. On our Blues Heck Brothers yeah. episode. Yeah. Um, she, I was talking to her one time, and I was actually talking to Amanda about this same subject. That the one bad thing about podcasts is they are not inclusive towards yes. deaf people. Yes. Yep. So, and it's something I never considered. But, you know, Katie made a great point that there's a lot of, there's a wealth of information out there that people who are deaf can't get to. So one thing that I – it's going to be a slow process, and I'm going to be using our Patreon funds to make this happen, but I'm going to slowly start tra- getting our all of our episodes transcribed. Nice. Awesome. I'm going to start with obviously the newest ones and you know and work back as we go. Yeah. Uh, I've been looking in the services for it. I also have a friend who would be willing to do it because that's what she used to do for a living. She used to do she used to type subtitles. Actually, our, our former house guest Emma, she used to type subtitles for television shows. Um, <laughs> oh, that's the first time I've heard you describe her as my former our former house guest Emma. She went back to Florida. Uh, whenever whenever we do actual merch push i'm advocating for a shirt that says my house guest emma <laughs> i agree <laughs> I, and that's all it says and my then, house guest emma and then i got the shameless picture show logo yep, on the back yep <laughs> uh so that's you know that that's my long pitch for the patreon is you know we're trying to make things more accessible you know I'm and a, yeah th- this is episode number 99 99 so we would consider it an anniversary gift yes. if you signed up for the patreon in anticipation of our 100th episode yeah 
Anyways, um, yeah, so like I said, you know, check out uh, the Patreon, and um, this episode is, is a, like I said, a Patreon episode. We'll be doing Swiss Army Man sometime soon. <laughs> yes. Uh, and actually, Stephen Millick, he, he's, been a, he's been a friend of the show for since the early days, and it was one of the earliest films I remember him suggesting we should watch, and nice. he, wanted us to, he wanted us to talk about it so bad, he jumped up. He's Patreon. like, all right, fine, Patreon, <laughs> you gave me a path, I'm going to take it. Exactly. Awesome. Um, but the film that we're talking about today is actually a film that I can't speak for you, Nick, but I have never, I'd never even heard of. I had never heard of it either. I feel like I've heard the filmmaker's name, Bill, Bill Forsyth, but I've never seen any of his films. The movie we're talking about today is uh, filmmaker Bill Forsyth, Forsyth's, that's hard to say, Bill Forsyth's <laughs> local hero, McIntyre. Or Mac, for short, is a hotshot sales executive working for a Texas oil company called Knox Gas and Oil. He's a shrewd businessman and is very confident in his abilities to, to close a sale. His skills are definitely noticed by the company's CEO, Felix Happer. It also doesn't hurt that his name sounds Scottish because Happer has plans to send Mac to a small Scottish village with the intent of buying the village and its surrounding beaches so they can build an oil refinery. Happer, who is an avid astrology nerd, has complete faith in Mac's ability to close the deal and send him on his way to meet with his skittish, kind of dorky guide, Danny Oldson. Together, Mac and Oldson find more than they bargained for in this small town and begin to see the world in a new way. As the sale looms on the horizon and the townspeople wet their lips at the prospect of being rich, Mac begins to question his own existence in this world and questions once he questions what he once held so near and dear to his heart. Local Hero is the fourth film by Scottish filmmaker Bill Forsyth, who is best known for his deliberately paced poetic films that explore themes of acceptance, growth, and morality viewed through a quirky yet droll prism. Local Hero, by the way, I think that's one of the best descriptions of a filmmaker I've ever written. (laughs) (laughs) Local Hero was originally intended to be financed by Warner Brothers, but they weren't interested until Chariots of Fire producer David Putnam stepped in to help finance the picture and Burt Lancaster started to express interest. Once these two big names became attached, Warner Brothers had no problem stepping in and lending a hand to help this small film find its footing. All wasn't for naught, however, as Local Hero would go on to win the prize for Best Directing at the 1984 BAFTA Awards. Uh, Written and directed by Bill Forsyth, the film features stunning color cinematography by future Academy Award winner Chris Mangus. Currently, he had the award, but when he made the film, he hadn't won the Academy Award. And a very atmospheric score by Dire Straits founder Mark Knopfler. The film stars Peter Reigert, Dennis Lawson, Fulton McKay, Jennifer Black, and a baby Peter Capaldi, and Burt Lancaster (laughs) as Felix Happer. From 1983, this is Local Hero. There is a place where the northern lights transform the sky. Anything out of the ordinary, you telephone me, night or day. Modern mermaids spring from the sea. What's the most amazing thing you ever found? Impossible to say. See, there's something amazing every two or three weeks. The land breathes with an ancient mystery. Where are we? And all who witness its wonders come to believe in its magic. What about the sky? Sky, sir, is amazing. I wish you could see it. I wish I could describe it to you just like I'm seeing it. This is the new film, 
from the producer of Chariots of Fire, local hero. The survey teams have found just about the only suitable bay on the entire coast. I think we should get a negotiator on the side right away. We're here on kind of a mission. Same here. I don't want to be coy with you, Gordon. We want to buy the whole place. We want to buy everything from the cliffs to the north through to the bay on the far side. That's all. Oh, boy. Are we going to be rich? Peter Riegert. Bert Lancaster. Take the chopper. Go to Aberdeen. Get on over to Houston. I want to stay here. Run the hotel. Do little bits of business. You can go to Houston. Take the Porsche, the house, the job. It's a good life there, Gordon. Local hero. <laughs> the story of an ordinary man who cared enough to do something extraordinary. Local hero. <laughs> the Peter Capaldi thing threw me because, like... I knew who he was because of Doctor Who. Even though I never watched his season of Doctor Who, that's kind of when I fell out. Uh, okay. But I knew who he was, and I was sitting there like, who the fuck is this guy? Why does he look familiar? But he's so young. I, I did not recognize him at all, but the second he opened his mouth, I'm like, oh my god, that's Peter. Like, I, I instantly recognized his voice. <laughs> and like... He's such a dork in this because, like, the Peter Capaldi I'm used to is like silver fox, angry. Yeah, he's always yeah. just angry. Look at the eyebrows; these are attack eyebrows. You could take bottle tops off with these. They are mighty eyebrows indeed, sir. They're cross. <laughs> They're crosser than the rest of my face. They're independently cross. They probably want to seed from the rest of my face and set up their own independent state of eyebrows. That's Scott. I am Scottish, and I've gone Scottish. Oh, yes, you are. You are definitely Scots, sir. Uh, I, I hear it in your voice. Oh, no, that's good. Oh, it's oh, good. I'm Scottish. He's equally as flaily. In this, his arms are always kind of. He's just like all was, over the place. I just kept thinking, it's like I can see Nick playing this role. Right. Like I could just see you moving around all all crazy, like and. <laughs> if we did uh, an American remake, I'd cast you in that part. Thank you. I could also see me having like making this movie. It felt very familiar the whole time, and mm-hmm. I wasn't sure why. And by the end, I'm like, oh, this is the way that I write. I found the film to be very charming. In a way, like, but unex- I don't want to say unexpectedly, so that's the wrong word. Um, in a very unassuming way. Yeah. Because I finished the movie, and I just felt, I felt very pleased with myself and fe- pleased with the movie. And Amanda's like, well, how was it? And, she's, and I was like, I don't know. Yes. Like, yes. Like, <laughs> it's like, well, it's definitely not a bad movie. I think I really liked it. I don't know. It's just like the film just kind of washed over me. Yeah. Yep. It's it's mellow. It it is not it never tries to like grab your attention, but I never like I was never not giving it my attention. It mm-hmm. was very interesting. There are not a lot of movies like this. And it's funny, but it's also not and I wouldn't even say it's a dry humor. It's just it's not trying to be. I just don't feel like the movie's trying to be funny, and it just happens to be like, the the most over the top stuff was like Burt Lancaster, and even he 
and his his therapist played it in a rather like serious way. His therapist was the most like goofy, over the top, yeah, over the top, and it's still like by other standards, it's it still was not. I think my favorite part about it is that that didn't really resolve. Like it almost resolved when he like ordered him to be shot, kind of. If this was an American movie, you would have even if you wouldn't have seen it, you would have heard the gun, you would have heard the gunshots go off. You would have heard someone somebody in the back would go, "Oh my god!" Right? Yeah. Would have, there would have been a resolution to it, and I was like, "No, it just." There was a lot in this movie that didn't resolve, and I'm surprised how little that bothered me. Like that, I think it was unresolved in a really smart way. So that's one thing I want to talk to you about. So I guess we've kind of already said, you know, our feel of what we felt about the film. Mm-hmm. Uh, we both liked it. It's yep. one of those films. If if it's a hard film to recommend to people because it's like if someone would be like, "Oh, you liked Local Hero. What did you like about it?" I don't know. Uh. I don't. Know. It's just it's charming, and even saying it's charming doesn't do the film justice because right. there's just a quality to it and. Every time I felt like I, I, I had a feeling about it, not, that would change. So, like, uh, a case in point, when, I, when the movie first started and we met, like, uh, Peter Reichert, who plays Mac, you know, at first I was like, I don't know if I like this guy. And then, you know, something would change. And I was like, oh, I kind of do like him. <laughs> and, um, you know, um... um Every time I was like, well, I, I have a feeling I know where this film is going to go, and it didn't go that way. And I, I think that's one of the, and, uh, upon my initial watch, what intrigued me most about this film is, given the setup, mm-hmm. you would assume that this story is going to be, Big American Oil Company tries to buy up small Scottish town, the town... Fights against it, but he falls in love with the town and decides to fight against the company that he works for to save said small town. And that is not what happens at all. No, that's, like he, that, that'd be the George Bailey version of this film. Right. Like, he comes in and they're like, oh my god, guys, this is our ticket out of here. I know. We, are, we are all going to be millionaires. The way Let's they showed that, too, is like... When they first get to the the hotel, and you know the the, the hotel guy is, is is fucking with him and making fun of him, and <laughs> and then you know when you find <laughs> the review of him being like the lawyer they have to talk to, and then you know and then it, like when, when they leave and he because the way he's talking he's like oh, we'll figure it out we'll figure it out I'll talk to everyone I want to be the one to talk to them it's very much like oh the town's going to be hesitant, yeah and then he leaves and he starts dancing it's like wait is this a good thing and then. <laughs> And then there's the church scene where oh he's talking God. to all the other residents. Yes. And every single resident is like, fuck yes. Let's when are we going to get our money? money? Yep. Oh, my it God. Was, and then when it they're was like, so they're like, strange. The American guy is coming. And like, everyone be quiet. We don't be want cool, to know we're cool, meeting. Because cool. it's like when you, you know, you're buying a house. Like, don't let them know how much you like this house. Right. Yep. Yep. <laughs> Oh my god! Um, oh, and then we had to get the coins. It's like he needs he needs money for the the phone booth. Who's got who's got money? And everyone just starts banding together to get the coins. Which which of course with Peter Capaldi being in it, I'm Im- uh, immediately going. That's the TARDIS, right? It's got to yeah. be the TARDIS. Wrong color, but we all. Know. As, well, there was that moment where the the old guy that paints everything in the town was going to repaint it, and they asked him. 
should it be a different color? And he's like, no, I guess red's fine. I was like, no, blue. Go blue. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but no, it's like this, like, I, I said earlier, the film just kind of washed over me. And that's the best way to describe it. Like, like, like the waves of the sea crashing on a small stretch of Scottish beach. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> And, um, like I said, every time I feel like I had the movie pegged, something would just alter and change. Yep. And, you know, everything from, like, the cin- the cinematography, like, the like the way that they shot the sky in this movie. Right. Which is fucking yep. gorgeous. And, those, and the beach shots mm-hmm. of, like, um, Mac and Oldman early on, the way that they would walk down the beach in silhouette from a distance is, at, even though you're intimately involved in their conversation you're hearing the conversation as if you're right next to them but it's showcasing this um this beach that they're trying to turn into an oil refinery yeah and it's just like it just lives in this world of slightly heightened reality yeah and it's not much like if reality's here if this is the bar you know this movie just takes place just Just right up here where it's just it almost feels like a fairy tale. That's that was where I was gonna go with it. I I didn't peg this on watching it, but I was reading reviews of the film that oftentimes described it as a fairy tale, and that feels really right, hmm. especially since there is a mermaid in this film. Yeah, yeah, there is. <laughs> you know, we're using a very slight definition of of the term mermaid, but it counts. It is it, a maiden who loves the water with webbed feet. Yeah, well, and and there are some. Um, she's always in the water. She, they describe how she can hold her breath underwater for an for oh, an incredibly long right. amount of time. She's got a magnificent pair of lungs. Oh yes, a great asset. Five degrees in oceanography and a very talented programmer. I'll get rid of her when she surfaces. She's not in on this furnace thing yet. There, when she's joking with old men. Oldson. Oldson. They're, they're, I I don't remember how she worded it, but she was talking about traveling from the Caribbean to, to, um, Scotland. And he said, well, I don't think I could swim that far. It's kind of a joke. But then there's this, like, implication by the writers that maybe she did swim that distance there's a lot of little oh also when when they see the seals and peter capaldi says you know fishermen used to think that those were mermaids and her answer is they're wrong which could like on the surface it's just like yeah obviously those aren't mermaids but then there's the way the words that she chooses could imply that well yeah they're wrong because i know what a mermaid is because i am one. <laughs> oh, that's interesting never so put that together it's there's very a lot things. of very small breadcrumbs in there that um enough to to tease you and play with it i think it's intentional though i don't necessarily think that it's literal yeah and and i feel like this is a movie that Upon rewatch, it's just going to kind of open itself up more. Yes, yes. It's, it's a movie that you know you you have kind of have your first experience with it, and it, I think every time you view it, you're just going to notice little things because the it does take its time. It's it's a very deliberately paced film. It's it's not like so we just recently rewatched Scott Pilgrim vs. the World, and 
that's a movie that if you're not paying attention, there's so many visual gags and things happening in such a fast pace that if you blink, you can miss something. So that's a movie that upon rewatch, you notice more and more things. This is a film that it's almost like reading a book where you can take your time with it and it wants you to. And yep. it's the more you see it, there's going to be these little nuances that you're, that you're going to pick up, that, especially if you know where it goes. And I, I think that's one of the benefits to rewatching a movie. I know a lot of oh, people who don't, who don't like to rewatch things, and I get that. Um, you know, you always want to see something new, but like knowing where a film goes, it can be so beneficial upon rewatch because then you're seeing everything from a point of view of knowledge. Yeah, yeah, and you have a little bit, you know, because the first time you watch a film, you are going along with it. You're you're discovering character. every moment. Yes, but you know it's like um, it's like. But the second time you watch it, it's like it's like hiking on a trail that you're familiar with. You become so familiar with it that when some something different is there that you didn't see before, you're like, oh, how have I not noticed this beautiful sunrise? Yeah, because you're looking at everything else the first time. You know, so that's the way I think about it, and like, I. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm actually kind of excited to rewatch it because I think that it, it's got a it's got a lot to say. Back when I said it's the kind of movie that I would write or the mm-hmm. kind of script that I would write, it's things like how there's a baby in the movie that is never explained whose baby it is, and that's that's I think the the moment in the film that best for me summarizes the kind of humor that this movie has is when they're all standing around and Mac is like, oh, who's baby? And there's like 10 guys, you know, the lobstermen and, and they're all standing around and they just start awkwardly looking at each other. <laughs> and then and then the scene cuts away. Like that, it, they spend a moment really drinking in everybody's reaction, but there are zero answers and then and then that's it. And we keep seeing that baby, and somebody different is pushing it. Every they're just pulling the stroller down the beach to mm-hmm. you know as the town moves, and it's or the rabbit. How so? This rabbit gets hit by a car early on, and they bring it with them, and they name he names it after his ex girlfriend, and he's like caring for it because it broke its leg when he hit it, and then all of a sudden the lawyer slash hotel owner like serves it to them, yeah. but like. And and Matt is upset by it, mm-hmm. but the hotel owner is completely unapologetic about it. Yeah, and he's he's like, um, uh, was like, well, there's a, 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 a firm no animal policy in the hotel. I guess you should have told you about that. <laughs> and and then they never mention it again. It's so random and strange, and I want to rewatch it to like dive into what the filmmaker was thinking with that inclusion like it's it's included for a reason yeah the filmmaker had intention behind that inclusion and i don't understand what that inclusion is but i want to and like i just just think it's so well written so like there's that scene when they first hit the rabbit um and olsen says why don't we kill it hit with something hard and max says well you've already done that for two-ton automobile (laughs) or there's a scene later on where i um Max buying shampoo, and the the woman who owns the shop says, "Do you want it dry, normal, or greasy?" And Max goes, "Normal, <laughs> extra normal." 
and it's it's just got like this this really interesting writing style to it. Yes, absolutely. And like I said, you know, like these are these are all jokes that with a different director and different actors could be you know really played up for chuckles or you know like. You know, even if just a different actor playing Mac, like, you know, they could be trying to hit them more as jokes, but he's just saying so many of these things conversationally. Yes. That just yep. makes it's part it, of the magic of the of the humor. Yeah, it's just like, no, this is just how people talk. It's very unassuming. Yeah. So, one thing I wanted to talk about is, so, one, I'm glad that you liked the film. Yeah. And when you, I love that you said it reminds you of something you would make because I could kind of see that. But one thing I was a little worried about is so this is definitely a film that wears its style on its sleeve. And it's not overt. It's not like a Michael Bay or Nicholas Winding Refn film where it's like trying to be overly stylistic. But it definitely puts style and character before story. Yeah. I don't feel like, and actually, I know this for a fact. I don't feel like the film and the filmmaker care about story at all. I would disagree. Okay. I I just think that it is, they're much more light-handed with the story. Mm-hmm. I think most scripts, especially American scripts, are much more heavy-handed with their presentation of the story. Mm-hmm. And this one, it's there, mm-hmm. but you have to dig for it. Yeah, and actually, and, and I'm, the reason I, I say I know for a fact is because I listened to an interview with the the director, and um, where he says, "I'll tell you what he says," but that, then I'll, I'll explain what I think he means. Uh, well, Forsyth says he isn't interested in story; um, he's more interested in characters and filmic language and capturing chunks of existence. Because he said, you know, he's like, "I love characters." But if I wanted to tell characters, I would write plays. But he's like, okay. there, there's an element to filmmaking that you can't capture in a play. But then he goes on to say that, you know, so this interview was conducted somewhat recently because it was on the Criterion edition of Local Hero. Nice. Yeah. which uh, got Paul, the TARDIS right there. Yeah, which Paul gifted to me. Oh, nice. Um, And... But then he says he's like he's like I haven't watched TV in like fifteen years. He's like and I haven't been to a, a cinema in like two decades because <laughs> he said I just got sick of films. But I'm misquoting him. I'll probably add a quote from him in in yeah. here, audio wise, where he says you know I've just got sick of being berated with uh, with all with this overabundance of storytelling. So I think what you said is tr- correct, where it's not necessarily that he doesn't care about story. He just, I think it's more so he doesn't care about plot. Sure. He doesn't, he, he doesn't need all these little plot points and things happening. And, you know, his story is rather simple. Mac needs to go on this adventure. He goes on a different adventure and finds himself in the process. Yeah. That's it. No, I... I, I think it's the reason to write a book, write, write, direct a play, make a movie, write songs. All of this that we're—it's all storytelling. Yeah. Like if you're if you're saying that you're not interested in storytelling and you're making a movie, then there's a disconnect there. Mm-hmm. I think, like you pointed out, it's more accurate to say that he's not interested as interested in plot, um, and. 
Because the story is interesting. Yeah. There's a lot going on with the story. And it's in a big but, part of that. Oh, sorry. But the plot points aren't these hard hit. Like, and then this happens. I, I was actually, I was struggling, not struggling, but I was wondering the whole time who, if anyone, the protagonist is. Yeah. Uh, because that, that Mac, wasn't what I was going to say next. Matt is not really driving the story along. No. Um, maybe it's the lawyer. Maybe it's Happer from a distance. But I I think there are lots of arguments to say that those aren't. Yeah. Because um, so uh, it, I I haven't cracked that nut yet. Well, that's one thing I was going to say is like you know you have a pro, you seemingly have a protagonist or you know whatever the storytelling term is for the character that we spend the most time with. <laughs> that the main we have the main character. We have the main character Matt. who doesn't do much, but those right. around him do. Because yep. uh, Mac essentially just rea- he's just living in this world. He's just reacting. He's not. He he's a great example of a main character who is not a protagonist. Yeah, because like he, you know, even his love life, like he he he's in love with that that local girl. I think her name was Stella. Uh, yeah, and wasn't that uh, the Urquhart's wife? Yeah, uh, girlfriend or something. Yeah, it, definitely together. And then I found it very strange at the end. It, when they got drunk and he's like, you can go to, Te- that's fine. You know, he, they were both drunk and he's like, you can go to Texas and I'm going to be you here. And he's like, well, what about Stella? He's like, that's the thing. I want you to leave her here with me too. Is that cool? And he's like, yeah, sure. And they're, it's just drunk talks or whatever. I want to stay here, run the hotel, do little bits of business. You can go to Houston, take the Porsche, the house, the job. It's a good life there, Gordon. I pull down 80000 a year. Plus, I have over 50000 in mixed securities. I want you to have it all. There's nothing due on the car. It's pure ownership. And I won't let down your good name here, Gordon. I'll make a good Gordon, Gordon. What do you say, pal? What about Stella? Uh, I was coming to that. I love her. Very, very much. She's wonderful. She's the most beautiful woman I've ever loved. And I think she knows it. I want you to leave Stella here with me, Gordon. Would you do that? Would you leave Stella here with me? Sure, Matt. You're a good guy, Gordon. But then at the end, when when Matt is leaving, and he says goodbye to Urquhart, and he's like, "Well, aren't you going to say goodbye to Stella?" And he's like, "No, I better not. I'm just going to go." He's like, "You should go say goodbye to her. You should." Like he kept pushing mm-hmm. Matt to say goodbye to his. Girlfriend slash wife slash fuck buddy. It's not. I I don't know if it's ever identified, but I found that moment very strange. So what, I, that's what I find so interesting about this movie is you have situations like that, but then you have Oldson who does find love. You know, I feel like all the characters <laughs> around him are doing these these kind of interesting things. He's sucking on mermaid toe. Yeah, <laughs> sucking on mermaid toe. <laughs> 
Um, I'm just looking at my notes real quick. Um, and I think I think that's the strength of this film is you have these you have such strong, interesting characters, and it's it's like it's. Do you ever hear like rules of of filmmaking or writing or whatever that you you both agree with and disagree with at the same time? Yeah. Well, there there there's the know know the rules so you know when to break them. Yeah. So like, one of the biggest rules of that you hear when it comes to screenwriting is don't if it doesn't move the plot forward, don't put it in your script. And you know. People would always like you know if there's a don't have them talk about something that doesn't move the plot forward. Don't have a scene that doesn't move the plot forward, and you know because my thought was I can see that, but then also there's also part of me like what this does more than that it builds character. Yeah, you know people in 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 film schools whenever someone would say like you don't have a scene that doesn't move the plot forward, people would always mention Tarantino and you know the fact that he just has two characters talking about cheeseburgers in the beginning of a film. It's like what about that? He's like well that's different. Well, why is it different? They can never say why it's different the, other than the fact that it was just done well. That That's a part of understanding the rules so mm-hmm. that you know how and when to break them. This film if is you a, can't identify why that's different, then you don't understand the rule fully. Mm-hmm. This film does a great job at it because if you removed all those little idiosyncrasies that you know make up the film, you'd have no movie. <laughs> right there, there would be nothing. Left. There would be nothing left. Well, and, and I would, I would challenge the rule of don't include it if it doesn't move the plot along. I think there are. I, I think that's too narrow. I would say don't include it if it's not interesting. Yes, and that that can that's that's the biggest question is how do you know if it's interesting? Sometimes you don't. You just kind of have to, right? you know. But like I just keep thinking of what the director said in that interview, where he's like he's he's interested in capturing chunks of existence, you know, essentially characters sitting around talking to each other and figuring out what's life, what are yeah. we doing here, <laughs> and I find that really endearing. Um, you know, he also said that like the story isn't what's happening; the story is what's happening to him. And I've been, I've been sitting with that for a little bit because it's not necessarily like what is directly like what are people doing to him, but it's more so what is happening internally to him. That okay. is what he views the story as about. Because Mac in the first scene versus Mac in the final scene are two very different people. Yeah, I don't like. I don't feel like I have a great understanding of who Mac was in the beginning. I feel like uh, you. I, I feel like I a, do. Just use a, ca- a caricature of a of a, a a swarmy, you know, like a business dude. Like I feel like we all kind of get an idea of who that person was. Well, I, 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 I would say that that is a reasonable assumption to jump to. Mm-hmm. But I think it's all very generic. What we see in the beginning isn't like, okay, yep, he's a smarmy businessman. We see him in a smarmy business environment. Mm-hmm. And we don't get a lot of character detail other than this is where he is. He, he like, calls the girl in the office that one time and says, do you want to go grab a drink? And she says no. But and I didn't think there was he anything also then particularly. Calls ex- he also then calls his ex-girlfriend and tries to get... I I did him and I get the impression that he's lonely. Yeah, I don't think he did anything particularly steezy. Maybe not 
you know, the most romantic or successful, but, um, let me tell you, it, if you're in the business world, you're skeezy. <laughs> well, and that goes back to what I was saying. Like, I think there's some assumptions that are safe to jump to and they might be right, but I don't think that there's a lot of in film direct evidence of what his personality is. And we see him go through a change regardless. We see him change. We see him go, this is the life I want to live. Which is weird because I was expecting the story, the townsfolk, to instill that in him, and they don't. Mm-hmm. Like, the townsfolk are like, no, we want to be millionaires. We're going to go buy houses elsewhere. And he's like, oh, I could fill that void. Even yeah. though it would be, ca- like, he can't live that life if he sells the town to the, you know, to the oil company. But um, but he does, he envies the life that they don't envy themselves. Yeah, exactly. It's very much a grass is green on the other side type yeah. of story. And they even, some of the residents are even, there's that conversation they have at their big party with between the two to uh, residents where they're like, huh, I'm a millionaire now. I thought I'd feel different. I don't. It's like, well, you just have to accept that you're a millionaire now. Oh. Mm-hmm. Like, they're... Yeah. The, it, it's, <laughs> it's such a bizarre and interesting, yet still super subtle, exploration of, of that grass is greener. Everybody wants something that they don't have, but even when they get it, like to what end? Then then you're just the same person in a different situation looking at a different green greener pasture. Yeah, it's and it's almost kind of like it feels like it's trying to say that, you know, money doesn't make you happy because money wasn't necessarily making Mac fulfilled. It's you know, these these people these these people in this small little town they literally just got money and they're like, Well fuck now what? That was our whole goal. That was like we this is what we're living for. Now we have it. Now what do we do? And then you get, and, and like, you know, you see, um, uh, let me look up the character's name real quick. Uh, ben Knox, who lives out on the on the beach, yep. you're like, well, he's very happy. He doesn't even have a fucking door, and the man's just happy as a clam. And, like, and then you could be like, oh, I think this film is about, you know, how money doesn't make you happy. But then you get someone like Happer, who seems completely Who's, fucking happy well, with his wife. And, and what's interesting about that is... The oil company is Knox, so so that Knox yep. name is yep. directly attached to the two happiest, most satisfied characters, and they're complete opposites of it. One is a, a you're assuming a millionaire billionaire oil tycoon, and the other one has been living on the same beach for four, his family owned for four hundred years, sitting in a shack all cobbled together. So money is, and I think we're actually somehow actually getting to the root of the point of this movie though i didn't see it coming when we first started no it's not like i think the the point of the movie is what does make somebody happy and and the evidence in the film suggests that it is not money or lack of money it is independent Mm -hmm. of money it's more of an internal satisfaction. You have to figure out what that thing is for you. And and it might be strange astrological <laughs> events. It might be sitting on a beach seeing what washes up every day. Um, both characters are interested in discovery. Yeah. Yeah. And, like, just the... Burt Lancaster is such an amazing actor that, like, the scene where Mac calls him when he's witnessing the aurora borealis and he calls him and, <laughs> and tell he's him drunk about it. and it's red now it's red 
Oh, wait and a minute. Nope, that's the booth. Oh, wait, now it's red. Burt Lancaster's such a good actor that he just kind of sat back and was like taking it all in yeah he, but then he got distracted by his psychologist yes yes Matt. psychologist ruined his moment <laughs> and he missed it like that's it i'm I'm going up um yeah like it's 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 yeah i think like i think we definitely got to the root of this you know like happer is his his joy is the stars and yeah. you know while he's a very successful businessman you very much get the impression and i and i'm 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 they don't never say this in the movie so i'm just kind of taking liberties here yeah is that he made this money so he could devote his time to this thing you know because it doesn't seem like you know like he doesn't leave his fucking office he's got a house built into his right. fucking office like yep. this is this is where I he's would, happiest i i or remember not, he's not happiest there but he's he loves these astrological enigmas and yep. that's what he truly cares about yeah and they even there there's evidence in the movie to say that money is not a factor in happiness um actually that that relationships love and sex are not uh what makes somebody truly happy and satisfied you can see that in matt's um loneliness in the beginning and how that doesn't get resolved you can see it in the relationship between urkert and stella yeah um and I don't. I I still don't quite know what to make of Peter Capaldi and the Mermaid. Um, I think that there's something there that I haven't been able to tie into this uh, running theory here. But um, it it seems like the the moral of the story is that the the passion for discovery is what makes one. Uh, satisfied on on that kind of super strong level and everything else is just a distraction mm-hmm. you got the the party scene where the the what is it the ace tones are playing and that uh amazing ziggy stardust punk rock mohawk yes. girl is like yes. um uh chasing down capaldi the whole time and then the the band member comes up to her afterwards and she's like what are you chasing him for like clearly he wants that kind of attention from her and she's like he's just different mm-hmm. like she's just they're they're a lot of the characters are looking for that distraction and they don't understand the idea of uh actual deep lasting satisfaction yeah and what's crazy it's like one of, one of the the scenes that's been I keep thinking about is in it's one it's one of the early scenes of when Mac and Olson got to the town and you know Mac's just kind of walking around the town talking to people getting to know them and they're talking about lobster fishing and they're like oh these lobsters they have quite a life as soon as we catch them they get off on an airplane and they, <laughs> they see, get the to see the world <laughs> And then Mac asks, was like, well, do you ever, do you, uh, do you ever eat them? Oh, no, we can't afford them. Right. It's like, you guys are literally the ones catching the lobsters. And it makes you wonder if once they became millionaires, would they eat the lobsters or not? Yeah. Or would they still want to keep 
catching them. Yeah. And you also have the like now now I'm I'm just the the story analyzer in me wants to think that everything's a metaphor. So there's the when they're in that same scene they say the lobsters are trying to get in or sorry the crabs are trying to get in and the lobsters are trying to get out. Um but and we only want the lobsters, we don't want the crabs even though it seems to me that there would be a great seafood market for crabs though i live in maryland where that's like our chief seafood (laughs) uh, (laughs) thing so um but i there were a lot of lines like that where it felt like it was saying more than Mm -hmm. i was processing yeah and i also wouldn't be surprised too if like some of these lines which are you know were written Maybe even the the director, writer, director didn't even know what he was trying to say with them. Yeah. It was a subconscious thing, and I think that's my favorite thing about art and movies and shit like that is not everything needs to have an answer. Everything can can yeah. have a can mean something, but doesn't necessarily mean it was meant in that way. A lot of genius comes through the subconscious, and you don't even right. realize you're saying something or you're doing something. And I remember. Um, friend of mine, Kate, she uh, actually married me and Amanda. Um, she is a was a theology student, and um, I remember her reading one of the horror films I wrote, and she's like, she's like, so what do you think the film's about? And I told her, she's like, do you want me to tell you what it's really about? <laughs> <laughs> what what I think you were subconsciously writing the film about? And I'm like, oh, please do. <laughs> so uh, I'm going to tie this into plein air because that's where my brain is right now. Um our judge this year was Daniel Weiss, who's the president. Daniel of Weiss. The, of wait, because I'm gonna. This is borderline name dropping. Here. Okay, is the president of the Met? Oh shit, I know that. The the yeah, the museum in New York. Um, it's kind it's kind of a big deal. Okay, yeah, I t- I, t- I I go back to my Daniel Weiss. <laughs> yeah, yeah. See, um. And something he said, so every year he, he reads the awards and then a couple days later he goes back and explains why he chose the paintings that he did as the winners to kind of justify his choices. Um, and one of the things that he said at the beginning of it, it, he said like, here's the four criteria that I used to kind of rank all of these on. And then he explained that, and he goes, one thing that I did not take into consideration at all is artist's intention. Because once an artist finishes the piece and puts it out into the world, it doesn't matter anymore mm-hmm. what they intended. That doesn't change the product that they created at all. Now it's what the user, how the user is affected by the piece, and, and that because that trumps whatever uh the artist intended now i would qualify that a little bit to say that i think artist intention does matter but i can appreciate how when you're judging something you can't take artist intent into account mm-hmm. but i think that statement speaks to uh kind of the what we were talking about in that whether an artist intended a line to have meaning or not is not the end-all be-all of whether or not that line has meaning. Because mm-hmm. it's like, you know, you, you have film, you've had filmmakers all throughout history. Like, two of the ones that come to mind right now are like David Lynch and John Ford, where, you know, more words have been written trying to analyze their films than 
probably a lot of people. <laughs> but like when That's you a damn fine cup of coffee. <laughs> when you ask them about it, they don't talk about it. They don't care. You know, like David Lynch will specifically, you know, not talk about his intention, his meaning behind something because he, I, you know, it's he wants you to discover it, and it's probably a combination of things. It's like, well, who cares if something's not intended? If that's what you're reading into it, then just go with that. Yeah. You know, um, and then John Ford, who was very much a Hemingway type of guy, who was just <laughs> very manly man, and you know, he made these really nostalgic pieces, and you know, when when asked, I'm like. You know, did you intend for the Monument Valley to to you know stand in as a character and mean this? And he goes, "What does it matter?" Right. You know, that's just what they were like, and <laughs> you know, it's like you know, there's there's some filmmakers who you know try whether they intended or not, they try to have an answer and ex- explanation for everything. And I think, well, I'm definitely a big fan of context and knowing why something exists in this world. You know, let let the work speak for itself. You know, yeah. unless it was like, a, um, you know, completely wrong choice, then be like, what the fuck were you going for here? <laughs> like, uh, I'm, I'm listening to a podcast right now from Turner Classic Movies, uh, and they've only had two seasons of it. And they they do a deep dive on a specific topic or film or something. And right now they're talking about Brian De Palma's. Um, adaptation of bonfire of the vanities which was considered a huge flop and in the film it's about these two yuppie rich people who accidentally hit and run over a black kid and he dies um and um it's about like the ensuing court case and everything after that and like one of the things that like they do is like when they drive in the characters drive to the Bronx in that movie, they make it seem like almost like a post-apocalyptic wasteland because you know, but that's not really what the Bronx was like. And people like who lived there were like taking offense to it. And Brian De Palma's thought was like, well, I wanted the film to portray it the way the characters see it. And I was like, okay, I can get that. And but without context, it just seems like you're an asshole. <laughs> <laughs> but even with context, it's like, uh, uh. right. So it's yeah, a little bit of a diatribe. I just, I, 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 that's what I thought of as, you know, sometimes knowing helps and sometimes it does. Yeah. Right. And sometimes knowing, but okay, I can see that, but it's still wrong. Right. Yeah. <laughs> well, you tend, you tend disagree with an artist's representation mm-hmm. and you tend disagree with their intention but see something else and liked it for that reason and that goes back to the time our you know perennial conversation about uh problematic artists versus their art yeah i don't know i liked it i liked this movie nick i did i it it was it was stimulating in how um uh unassuming it was like it it i think there's a lot going on under the surface and the investigation of that the discovery of that is something that i really enjoy about consuming art so this one so it surprised me that if if i judged the movie based on the first 10 minutes i would not have thought it would have been as creatively stimulating as it ended up being no exactly because like when the movie began i'm like eh. We'll see where this goes. Yep. 
Um, so yeah, thanks, Paul. This is the second. This is your second uh, Patreon episode, and was the other one the uh, blue? Uh, Betty Blue. Betty Blue. That was, yeah, that was another really he good He chooses one. some really interesting films. Oh, some thinkers. Yeah. I like it. You know, same, I imagine we're going to have the same deep conversation when we talk about Swiss Army Man. <laughs> <laughs> <clears throat> and I'm sure uh, uh, one of our old, our, our faithful Patreon backers, Flounder, will have another movie for us shortly. Excellent. Can't wait. Um, do we have a little bit of time still, Nick? Of course. Cool, because I... I I have a couple, I have two things that I could talk about that I reviewed this week. If you want, okay. if you want to yeah. hear me talk at you for a little bit, talk at me, baby. <laughs> All right. So, would you rather a documentary or a western first? Western. Okay. So, um, over on Facebook Live, I've been doing a segment that I've been doing since the beginning of the show, but I finally gave it a name. <laughs> it's called "The Discs Made Me Do It," and every time we do this show. I try to figure out what the discs made me do, because I don't know. Uh, and I even have a theme song for it. Did I tell you about that, Nick? No. Um, so there is a local band called The Exposed Foreheads, but they did a song Excellent. called Rewind Your Behind that I've been using as our theme song. Weird science. <laughs> That's a local band called The Exposed Foreheads. I love uh, it. And funny enough, so I saw them play. In Milwaukee, we do an event in Bayview called uh, Chill on the Hill, where it's you come, you chill on the hill, and you listen to some two live bands play every Tuesday. Right it's pretty, on. It's pretty dope. A couple years ago, they had The Exposed Foreheads playing. And like they're in these crazy like space like jumpsuits, and they have women dressed in like go go like alien outfits, dancing and doing backup singing. It's a lot of fun. Um, and it, the the singer for the band hosts a a event every year called New Wave Fest, <laughs> where it's just a bunch of new wave bands playing. It's pretty <laughs> great. Uh, when I was at the Milwaukee Short Film Festival uh, last week, doing an event with him. I was just chatting with people afterwards, and I, I, I saw a guy. He's like, he looks vaguely familiar, and then I heard him talk, and he, it's, it turns out it's the singer for this band, because he kind of talks like the way he sings. <laughs> and I walked up to him after he's done talking, because you, you always want to be like, you don't want to like just jump in. <laughs> hey! <laughs> and I was like, I have a very weird question for you. And he's like, yes, what's that? <laughs> and, he's, and he's got like blue glasses on his And I was like, are you the singer for a band? And he goes, I am! Do you remember the name of that band? And, I was like, and at that moment, I'm like, uh... I totally do. And then I... I, I it up on my phone. I was like, I remember... I, was like, I can't remember at the moment, but I remember where I saw you play, and like, I own two of your records. <laughs> and then I told him... And, uh, he to- eventually told me the name, and I was like, it's... And I was like... I remember it had an X in it. It was like, but I kept thinking of this local band from the '90s called Those X Cleavers. He's like, it's funny you should mention that. The name is is in reference to them because their guitarist what? is one of our guitarists. I'm like, what, what the fuck? <laughs> like, what are the odds of this? So I, I also love in this retelling of the story your voice for him. It's uh, and it and it, from the sound of it, it's how he talks. But yes, it is. That's a Mr. Movie Phone says. I, I'm going. I'm, I'm. I'm. I'm accentuating it a little bit, but yes, it's. It, that was that was such a fun moment for me. I'm like, holy fuck! 
<laughs> Who would have thought? But anyways, that was a long introduction for this show. Uh, but I'm going to be talking about two movies. Nick chose a Western first. So from our good friends over at Arrow Video, I have Django. A century ago on the low hills along the border between the southern states and turbulent Mexico, a mystery man appeared. A man with a sad, impenetrable face. Django! Django, have you never loved again? Love will live on, on. life must go on, for you cannot spend your life regretting. Django! Django, who was that man? What was his secret? It's not important. And if I bothered you, will you accept my apology? He was pitiless in revenge, quick to decide, and a master of every weapon. A man everybody would like to have seen dead. Yeah, his name is Django. Django. The title of a film you'll never forget. Django. How many men you got left? Your tongue tied? Or don't want to tell me? <laughs> Too bad, Maria. Django. An audacious man of action, capable of a tender, hopeless love which could only last a day but a day which was worth all eternity. I'm glad I made you feel like a real woman. Very glad. I mean Django. A new, ruthless, violent film. Featuring a great new star, Franco Nero, and a great supporting cast. I have not. Um, Chained or otherwise. (laughs) There's a funny story about that, too. Um, (laughs) So the back of the box says, In this definitive spaghetti western, Franco Nero gives a career-defining performance as Django, a mysterious loner who arrives at a mud-drenched ghost town on the Mexico-U.S. border, ominously dragging a coffin behind him. After saving imperiled prostitute Maria, Django becomes embroiled in a brutal feud between a racist gang and a band of Mexican revolutionaries. With Django, director Sergio Corbucci upped the ante for sadism and sensationalism in westerns, depicting machine gun massacres, mud-fighting <laughs> prostitutes, and savage mutilations. A huge hit with international audiences, Django's brand of bleak nihilism would be repeatedly emulated in a raft of unofficial sequels. 
The film was presented here in its 4K UHD Blu-ray debut with a wealth of extras. Also included as a bonus feature, Texas Adios on Blu-ray, which also stars Franco Nero and was released as a sequel to Django in some countries. So, Django, which a lot of people will know based on the Quentin Tarantino film Django Unchained, yeah. which was named that in honor for this, in honor of this film. Because as the back of the box says, there was a bunch of unofficial Django sequels. Django was such a big deal. The P- if they had a Western of any sort, they're like, wow, it's just throw the name Django on there. <laughs> and like, and they'd have crazy titles like, um, like one of them was Django shoot. If you live, kill. <laughs> or, uh, you Amazing. know, like, uh, just crazy fucking titles, and they will just try to find any reason to to put Django in there. Most of them are not very good. That surprises me. Yeah. But so, <laughs> Quentin Tarantino did the same thing, and there's actually a scene in that movie where um, uh, uh, um, Jamie Foxx, playing Django, goes up to the bar and introduces himself to this Italian guy. What's your name? Django. Can you spell it? D-J-A-N-G-O. The D is silent. I know. And that guy is Franco Nero who played Django. <laughs> yes! <laughs> Amazing. Yeah. So Django is a... I don't want to say run-of-the-mill because that makes it sound dumb, but like it is a, it is a revenge story western that we've all come to know. It has one of the most iconic beginnings of a film I've ever seen. You know, you have a man dressed in a a, um, a northern military outfit dragging a fucking coffin behind him just through this this muddy dredge. And like, you have the theme song playing as Django, you know, like they used in the Django Unchained movie. And it's like, it's such an iconic image. And then he gets to this bridge and he sees this woman being whipped, like fucking whipped by these Mexican revolutionaries. And they're like, oh, well, this will teach you to escape. And they're like giving her a hard time. And Django's just watching to see what's going to happen here. And then right as the guy goes to lift up his whip, all fucking four of them, three or four of them are shot. And you're like, oh shit, was it Django? Whip pan to the left, and it's actually these other guys who shot the Mexican revolutionaries. And they're kind of like this crazy version of the KKK where they wear red masks. And then they're getting involved in this woman's life and be like, well, why are you hanging out with those Mexicans? We don't like Mexicans. And then Django decides to get involved. And like he's almost got like this Clint Eastwood aspect to him where he says very little. You know, yeah. and they're like, oh, you, you know, these racist guys are like, oh, you're from the North? He's like, I fought for the North. And it's like, <laughs> oh, there's tension between them. And then uh, Django ends up shooting all of them. And, you know, Django decides to go to this small town that's nearby and he takes Maria with him. And as the story unfolds, you find out that he's actually got beef with these racists because they killed his wife. Okay. But like what makes – so what makes this film I think so good is it just – it has these very memorable moments. Um, so, like I said, you never forget a man dragging a fucking wooden car. Right. That is such a strong image. And then, you know, these racist guys, they're like, you know, these clansmen, they're like, well, we don't like you, and we're going to come back and fuck your shit up. And he's like, bring it. And he's like, we have 40 men. He's like, bring it. <laughs> um, and then you see Django dragging his coffin outside, and 
you know, he, he, he takes cover behind, like, a broken down tree, and then these 40 fucking horses all show up. And it's like, how is Jingle going to get himself out of this? And they all start <laughs> Those gra- dude boys have gotten themselves into trouble again. <laughs> and then, like, they're all grabbing for their guns and everything. Jingle opens the coffin, and you see he's been holding a fucking minigun, like you can see on here, Nick. Yeah. <laughs> in his fucking coffin, he just pulls it out and just... Blows them all away, and it's like you don't—you never forget that. Or later on in the film, he he pisses off the the Mexican revolutionaries because he tries stealing from them, and they're like, "We're not going to kill you, Django, because we know you, we like you, but we're gonna we're gonna show you how we handle thieves in our country." And they have a guy come and take and just take the butt of his gun and just destroy his fucking hands. And they all then all of their horses walk over his hands, and you see it. And then he's got these mangled hands, and. Like, well, what's he gonna do now? And then there's a final shootout in a graveyard where he's trying to prop up his gun on a on a to- on a cross tombstone so he can. It's like it has all these just I really just stunning images. Yeah, that like for what you know make up for like when the film gets a little bit of a lull or the story's not as interesting. It's like just the way that they compose these images, I think, are phenomenal. Yeah. So. That sounds great. Um, yeah, it, it, it is a if if you're not a fan of spaghetti westerns or you've not seen many, this is a great place to begin. Nice. It's like a breezy 90 minutes. Um, there's a Blu-ray version coming out soon. This is the 4K restoration that Arrow did. And if you have a 4K player, 4K cable TV, this is the best way to see this film. It's You, you almost wonder like how they can make a movie this old look this good. <laughs> it, 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 um, it uses uh, high dynamic range pass-on, so the colors really pop. And while the film the film is older, it's you know it was, it was made in the '60s. It's only got it's got a mono soundtrack, but it it sounds fantastic. And the first time I watched the movie, I watched it with the American dubs, because normally my rule when it comes to uh, foreign films is okay, what language is the main character speaking? And I say that because a lot of Italian films would hire American big name American actors and then just get whoever else to play in the film because they never shot the movies with sound. Yeah. So they could always dub it in later. So it's like, okay, if I'm watching a movie and there's an American character as the lead actor, well, then I'm going to watch it in English because that's their most used language. My only only other caveat is if I'm watching, say, Spaghetti Western or something that's supposed to take place in the United States, (laughs) well, I'm going to watch it with the American dubs. Yeah. Just because, like, well, it's weird. If if I'm watching something that's supposed to take place in the American South and they're all speaking Italian... (laughs) <laughs> it seems strange takes but, you out of it a little bit but it's like well, okay I've seen it with the American dubs before let's watch it with the Italian subtitles it's a completely different movie really? yes like the American dubs have the gist of the story it just loses a lot of subtlety okay because apparently the the Italian subtitles were built off of the original Italian language track so it's it's a different movie. It was it was quite an experience watching it with this track. I would say Fascinating. It's, it definitely and a lot of times dubs don't bother me, but the voice actor they got for American Django is really lame. But Franco <laughs> Nero playing himself, it's like oh he's cool. Nice. It just it just worked really well. Uh, a lot of great special features on here. Uh, my favorite being so there's two of them that I like. There's one that actually has an interview with Franco Nero. 
Django himself, and he speaks English, and he's you know he's he's just sitting there talking about how fun it was shooting this movie, and like <laughs> he's like originally he didn't want to do westerns, but no one else is hiring him, so he's like, well, why not? And he's a, he has a career because of this movie. But then the craziest thing is if anyone listened to my episode, my Cannibal Holocaust episode, <laughs> back I think it was at season two. Uh, three, I two or three. Like. When I had uh, Jay Gilke on, we talked a lot about uh, Ruggiero Diodato, the filmmaker behind that film. Yep. He was the assistant director on this. Oh, nice! So they have a feature called "The Cannibal of the West," <laughs> and it's him talking about being the assistant director on this film. And I was like, well, "That's fucking nuts!" <laughs> the guy made Cannibal Holocaust. <laughs> Who would have thunk it? So, Django, the new 4K restoration, has my highest regard. And it's like, it is it is a collector's item for sure. And it comes with, like, it comes with a poster. Look at how thick this book of essays is. Good lord. So, if you like Django, this is the way to see Django. Awesome. Um, uh, I... Something you said in there reminded me of one more thing that I wanted to bring up about Local Heroes. So yeah. we, can cu- we can cut this out. We can leave it right where it is. We can try and edit it back into we'll the We'll talk about thing, editing whatever. it out and we'll just won't. And, uh, and, and then we won't. But um, a little uh, tidbit that I read this morning about Local Hero that was interesting. You mentioned that the soundtrack was written by um, the, the guy from lead Dire singer, Straits. Dire Straits. Apparently, the soundtrack... The soundtrack sales on Local Hero made more money than the film sales did. What? <laughs> I didn't think Dire Straits was that big of an act. Right, but yeah. But you know what's um, else, what else is crazy? And oh, he, would, uh, he worked the theme into the Dire Straits encore for a while. Yeah, When I they read would do that. performances. And what I think is crazy, too, he would then go on to compose the music for The Princess Bride. Oh, okay. I didn't realize that. So, like, who would have thought the dude from Dire Straits, like, you know, money for nothing and shit would be... <laughs> like, cause the, the, the music was one of the, definitely one of the standouts for me in this film. Yeah. Like, well, there's no... Most of the movie was a standout. Uh, but, like, I just... I think of the music, like, when he was, like, looking up at the stars. I'm like, oh, this is fucking gorgeous. Yeah. <laughs> no, I completely So, agree. there there we go. Yeah. Tangent. We'll find a way to work that in. And then I have uh, one other thing I could talk about real quick, Nick. Yeah, documentary. So, how familiar are you with a, a a production company from the 80s called Canon Films? I don't believe I'm familiar with them at all. Um, you Doesn't actually are. Okay. Uh, well, I'm, I'm saying that because... <laughs> why, why don't you answer that question for me? <laughs> well, they're, they're pretty kind of a big name. Um, I only say that because um, they put out a lot of big, like, not big, but, like, kind of fun, crazy movies that we're all familiar with, like He-Man. Okay. You know, they put out they put out He-Man, they put out Bloodsport, they put out like almost all of Chuck Norris's films. You know, they were a big name for, in like the the VHS era. Okay. You know, they did So uh, I know He-Man. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, Delta Force if you, Over the Top. Have you ever seen Over the Top? I have other than He-Man, I have not seen any of the films right. that you just mentioned. Right. Well, he's also they also did like the Death Wish sequels, Cobra, yeah. you know, yeah. Breaking <laughs> 2, Electric Boogaloo. <laughs> the Superman sequels, you know. So they they did a lot of. But um, I, I'm I'm familiar with them. Yeah, even that, that's if all, I haven't seen them. Yeah, it's, I just want you know as long as you're I just they're kind loosely. of a, they're kind of a name. That's the only reason I mention it. So 
I got a chance to review a copy of a movie called The Go-Go Boys. Ooh. The inside story of Canon Films. Okay. How do you become a filmmaker? Don't do anything else. Meet Israeli duo Menachem Golan and Yoram Globus. They have a dream of taking over Hollywood with their company, Canon Films. And what kind of movies do they make? Some critics call them schlock films. But actually, they're just plain, low-budget movies. It's a Canon movie. It's going to be awesome. Do you want to make a $30 million movie? Never. I don't know what to do with 30 millions. I, I can make 30 mo- movies, maybe. We are going to do a movie... And we have to do it fast. Don't be mistaken, you've got to see Break. The poster was more important than the movie. This is the Hollywood that most people know and love. The fancy cars. Golan and Globus will have nothing to do with this. They run their company like a factory. A no-frills operation where long hours and low pay are the norm. They were selling before and then making after. And it worked. Bring me Bloodsport. <laughs> I'm gonna make you a movie star. Critics call them exploitation movies, pandering to the lowest cinematic taste. Canon was synonymous with awesome in the 80s. There was no other film label that did that. This is a film that Canon did started only 12 weeks ago. It isn't a volume business. It's a hits business. You have to make hits in order to survive. They took away Yoram from me. This was the last straw. They would not think that anything could go wrong. Go, go. (laughs) It means go, go. You have to give yourself to the movie. Forget your other life. Dream about the movie. Steal the money. Kill your aunt. Take her money. Make a movie. You can all get rich in this business. I'm a chad b'chayim. Tikra tasri. Tikra li tasri. Tase kol noah. In the back of the box reads, The Go-Go Boys, the inside story of Canon Films, is a documentary about two Israeli-born cousins, Menayam Golan and Yoram Globus, who in pursuit of the American dream turned the Hollywood power structure upside down, producing over 300 films and becoming the most powerful independent film company in the world. Wow. Directed by Sundance Grand Jury Prize nominee Hila Medalia, The Go-Go Boys is a close-up personal documentary that examines the complex relationship between two contradictory personalities whose combined forces fueled their success and eventual collapse. Featuring interviews of Jean-Claude Van Damme, Michael Dudikoff, Eli Roth, Boaz Davidson, along with um, Maniam Golan and Yorin Globus themselves, as well as archive footage of Sylvester Stallone, Charles Bronson, and Chuck Norris in the definitive documentary about Canon Films. And I'm assuming Seth Green, because any time there's a documentary where people are interviewed, Seth Green is in the mix he somewhere. He is not. He is surprisingly <laughs> not. Um... So, like I said, the story is about the, this, these Israeli filmmakers who were making a, a little bit of a success for themselves in Israel. They actually won Manayim Golem. Um, um, uh, he made a film that won the David, that won, it's an award called David's Harp. It's actually the Israeli Academy Awards. It's their highest okay. jury. Um, and they're making these films, and they're like, well, fuck, we want to do more. And they made this movie called... Um, um, Lemon Popsicle. 
that they took to the Cannes Film Festival, I believe, and I remember them saying they were heartbroken because they said, you know, they got 15, 20, maybe 30 minutes in, and people were getting up and leaving. And they're like, oh, no, why is everyone leaving our movie? And they said they didn't realize that people were getting up because they were leaving to bid on it. Oh, oh, wow. So people were leaving to bid on it and they because they wanted to put it out. Uh, and they wanted to remake it into an American, and they made they ended up making a movie called The Last American Virgin. <clears throat> okay, if you've heard of that film, and no. pretty much their career took off, and they started making these rather inexpensive, kind of little schlocky films. Um, some of them were a lot of fun. A lot of people look back on them with a lot of um, um, nostalgia because you know people when they're going through the video store boxes and shit. Their logo was on so many things. Okay. Um, and they even talk about, like, how, um, you know, they got to a point where they're making, you know, all these these cheap little movies and people were, and, like, people like uh, 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 Roger Ebert were like, you know, they're not filmmakers. They're business people because what they would do is they'd go to the Cannes Film Festival. And before this was commonplace, they would go there with posters and sell movies that didn't exist yet and use that money then to go make them. Okay. And I I know that logo. Yeah, yeah. Um and it's it, it they just kind of have an interesting story and then like when people were like, "Oh, they don't make real films." Then they proved that they could and they produced like three or four Academy Award-winning films in a row. Oh jeez. Um but really what the story is about is their their fall from grace because what happened is the two cousins, one was very business-minded, the other was making movies. The brother who was making the cousin who was making movies struggled with budgets and was pretty much would just throw all of his money into the films. They were buying corporations they couldn't afford, and you know everything came collapsing down. Okay. And um, the reason this documentary exists is because I think a better documentary came out a couple of years ago called Electric Boogaloo. The wild and crazy story of Canon Films, and they are making that, um, and I think it's a better depiction of just how crazy it is. But the two cousins didn't want to be part of that documentary. This and in is true, their response to in it. True Canon Films, they commissioned their own documentary yep. and yep. got it put out before the other yes. one. It's like the, when the Firelight or the Fire Festival documentaries were competing. Yeah, yeah, to, to release. So, although that was funny, and actually, the, the guy who made the other film, he's he's kind of a good sport about it because he even says in the end of the film, you know, the the cousins did not want to be involved, but they've made their their own documentary, and he gave like the name of it or whatever. Oh, nice. <laughs> um, but the, it, this one was fine. I think the other one is better. This one is definitely more puff piece like because they are directly involved in it. Right. Um. And also, they sent me a blue. I got a Blu-ray copy of this film. There's no reason this movie had to be in Blu-ray because ninety percent of it was made up of SD footage, like archival yeah, right. footage. And I was like, I could have watched this on DVD; it would have been fine. <laughs> um, but no this this one was this one was fine. There was a couple unintentionally funny moments in this film. One, you get a very candid interview with Jean Claude Van Damme that he shoots himself. It looks like on a cell phone. Because uh, he's sitting in a chair, like, cr- sitting cross-legged with the shortest shorts I've ever seen. And I swear to Christ, I think you could see his pulse. We did a little, a little Van Damme. 
<laughs> yes, a little bit. Not quite, but you almost like you almost get there. And he tells kind of a nice story about he wouldn't have a career if it wasn't for these two guys. Okay, because they he said he's like I remember seeing them in a, a uh, in a restaurant and I was uh, the waiter. And I told him, you know, that I wanted to be an actor, and I kicked above their head. <laughs> and they had to do an interview <laughs> with him. Um, and but then there's also like, so the the cousins are delusional in a lot of ways. They don't believe that they ne- they made any wrong mistakes. They, if someone like, well, what's your greatest failure? I had no failures, right? Yeah, but okay. this happened, and you know um but there's a moment they kept in the documentary very surprisingly where the documentarian was asking was like so you know let's talk about some of your failures what failures well you know everyone who's been successful has a failure we didn't have any failures and he's like well and she's and they're they're fighting on screen they're arguing with each other and eventually she goes well tell me about super about superman 4 and he goes why do you want to hear about that i'm only about positivity i don't want to talk about what the bad stuff in my life <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, Amazing. which is why I think the ultimate the other documentary works better because while it's it's a it's a very fair depiction of the, and plus the other ones is a lot more fun to be honest yeah. with you. So you know it's one of those, it's one of those movies that if you're a big fan of the Canon Films Library, I think it's worth seeing. It's kind sure. of interesting to see both sides of the story. Yeah. I think it would have been yeah. better if they could just someone would just Frankenstein one movie together with all their interviews. Yeah. Um, I think. Um, yeah, I just I just don't think this one has as much insight into anything. It's just you know it's it's very much puff PC. Um, like I said, I'd say see them both, but the other one I'm more inclined to th- watching this one made me want to rewatch the other one. And okay. I don't usually rewatch documentaries very often, but I was like, fuck, I want to go watch the other one again. But yeah, with, especially with additional context. Yeah, yeah. So yep. it's like, well, now I want to go back and. You know, hearing it from their side of the story, I want to hear the same story told by other people. And so, yeah. So the, Excellent. The, that's what I've got for this edition of The Discs Made Me Do It. I've still not figured out what The Discs Made Me Do, but maybe that'll happen next week. It, it made you go back and rewatch a documentary. There we go. The, this week, Boom. The Discs Made Me Go Back and Watch Electric Boogaloo, The Wild Untold Story of Canon Films. <laughs> Excellent. Yeah. Well, if you don't like that, I guess I got two words for you. Watch, Watch movies. movies. <laughs> <laughs> Should we have signed off more? Did we need to? No, the the ending. That we we have our post credit thing. The Shameless Picture Show is recorded in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, and Easton, Maryland, and is hosted and produced by Nick Richards and Michael Byers. Today's episode was edited by Nick Richards. Our opening theme music was written especially for us by The Directionals, with narration by Zach McLean. The end credit music you're enjoying at the moment was generously provided by my friends in the band 10Speed. The shameless graphic design is masterfully done by Amanda Byers. An extra special thank you to all of our Patreon supporters and to our generous sponsors. We are on Spotify, Stitcher Radio, iTunes, Google Play, and Libsyn. You can find links for all these amazing people in the description below.